Hey everybody, you're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, brought to you by Iron Company. Today we've got a very special guest. We like to refer to him as the Forrest Gump of strength sports. As you recall, Forrest Gump had an uncanny ability to end up in the right places at the right time all throughout his life. That kind of sums up Marty uh, in the world of strength. But first of all... uh, I'd like to congratulate you because you're uh, you're famous as of uh, what a week or two ago. Pavel what? came on. Uh, what happened? Well, Pavel came on Joe Rogan and had a bunch of stories about uh, back in the day. Uh, Pavel used to come over and you guys would uh, discuss kettlebells before kettlebells and kettlebell training was even in the U.S. So yeah, I, I thought that was a into, real. I had I had to talk him into them. Yeah. Go into that story just just a little bit, just real quick, oh, it's because real, it's real, it's real interesting. Simple. I mean, you know, he when I first knew him, he was the flexibility expert. That was his thing, flexibility. But you would use flexibility in a certain way, Jim, to make you stronger. Yeah, like we do, full range of motions. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. And he's a you know a Russian Spetsnaz instructor, so it's like okay, I'll give this guy some some time so you know we struck up a rapport and he he when he would come to washington dc he would shoot up to visit me and he'd stay at our my house here for a couple of days and we'd hang out and go to the country he'd like to go to the woods and you know we'd roast meat or we had good restaurants here back then and we'd go out to eat and, um so one night we were in the deck drinking wine i was he was drinking wine i was drinking whiskey and I asked him what he had his master of sport in. Because in the old USSR, they just didn't give those away. That was like a very high level certification, regardless of what the sport was. And he said, oh, I had it in kettlebells. I said, well, you know, what, what do you got to do? And he described, I can't remember, you know, I think he, he talked like in pods, P-O-D-S. I think it's I don't food. Um by the way, did you know what kettlebells you know. were back then when he started talking about them? Uh, well, you know, they, you'd have pictures of the old-timey guys, right, Jim, like Sig Klein and stuff like that in the old magazine for Sandow or somebody. Hackenschmidt or something. Yeah, Hackenschmidt or something like that. But no, it wasn't anything that was that was used, uh, you know, kettlebells. And so I asked him, and he said that's what he did it in. And I said, um, I said you should do an article on that. And he said, no. <laughs> I said, uh, no, seriously, I said, you should do an article on that. There's a certain segment of American men that uh, would find that interesting. He said, and he was pretty, pretty vehement about it. He said, no, he said, Americans, the kettlebells are too harsh, too hard, too really too brutal. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll tell you what, you, you write the article, I'll edit it clean it up. We'll send it to my friend, Randy Strassen at Milo. And I guarantee he'll publish it. And that's what happened. And he published this article, whatever pickles, kettlebells, pickle juice. I can't remember something, something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kettle, vodka, kettle juice. Kettle uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, that was it. So that was the story of it. And because of that article, he got funding from John Duquesne. John Duquesne said, I think, I don't know. He might've taken a second mortgage out in his house. I don't know. But that was the start of it. So it really started on my deck. You know, my only 
mistake was they didn't get like one percent, right? Yeah, you know, I'm just surprised that you <laughs> so, get a little something here. Right? So is it safe no, no, to no, no, say no. He, that? Uh, now listen, he they helped me tremendously. They got my they got uh, me published with Dragon Door. No, it was a good. Uh, we had a good. Uh, what's the latest political? We had a good quid pro quo yeah. going on. But but Marty, we we have you and Pavel to thank for kettlebells. Right. I mean, it would have got here eventually. No, actually, actually you have me to thank. Yeah, because <laughs> you were really after him. From I've talked to you about this because before. Because if I hadn't, if I hadn't pushed the issue, he would have just stayed in the stretching. <laughs> and then he put a picture. Then he had Rogan look up Kirk and put a picture up of him. And he was Rogan, like, "Look at those yeah. There's yeah. a video that Marty Kirk and sent Kirk sent me some old tapes, and we, uh, you know, they're VHS tapes, so we wanted to digitize them. We wanted to put them on YouTube, and you know, so everybody could enjoy them. And he's got some crazy tapes that he sent me, so we put them on YouTube. Yeah, so we're watching Rogan the other day. Pavel's on, and he starts uh, talking about Karwaski, and uh, so lo and behold, there's the video of Kirk doing the. I think it's eight ten for for two reps on the, the deadlift. And that's, that's our video that we posted. Um, was he, was he acting out? He, he was, Kirk. yeah, he was, well, he was at the top of his game. That was when he was yeah. looking just shredded yeah. and muscular. Yeah. And I don't even on the deadlift. I don't even know how he got it, how the, how he got the bar around his quads are so damn huge. Yeah, he would be. And Joe goes, look at that effing guy. He's a monster. <laughs> He's like, look at those thighs. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something about Kirk. He right. was just incredible back in those days. And, I mean, he could have done a bodybuilding show, and he almost did, I guess, from uh, No, no, no. Sammy, he thought about know. it. Kirk, now I'm telling you guys. You see, you guys are like groupies. Pavel tried like to that. convince him back in the day to do a bodybuilding no. show. Kirk, Kirk. <laughs> Kirk is a collection of good body parts. He's great arms and great legs. Yeah, but he could have done good in a, in a back. Mind. He had a killer back, too. What? Mr. Wheaton. He would have won Mr. Nah, Wheaton. <laughs> Mr. Wheaton. I'm telling you, he was, man, he was so amazing. Yeah, you know, great, it, and the one thing gigantic, is, gigantic arms and gigantic I'm, legs. He was like Mike, Mike Quinn. Do you guys remember the bodybuilder, yeah. Mike Quinn? Yeah. Or uh, Matarazzo, another one. Yeah, incredible body parts, great calves, great arms, but you never saw whole body pictures of either Matarazzo or Mike Quinn because their their torsos were so, so non symmetrical, so yeah. long. Yes, yeah, and, and that legs. was the thing. That was the thing with Kirk. Kirk was narrow shoulder, wide hipped, which made him great squatter. He was wide hipped, but for bodybuilding, his shoulders were narrower than his hips. And from a distance, even a bodybuilding show, you would see that. Up close, his arms and his legs are so big and so cut and so muscular that you don't even notice. Uh, he also did not have a gigantic chest, and he didn't have a gigantic back. He had a good back, he had a good chest. But mainly, he had incredible arms and incredible legs. If anybody wants to see some really good shots of Kurt, go, uh, go on YouTube and type in Kurt Kowalski Beach Video. And this is... <laughs> This is the metrics and beer thing that he sent me. And he goes, I want you to put this on YouTube. So we we took out the best cuts from the whole thing. Is when they went to Ocean City years yeah. ago, like 94. I think it was like 94. Yeah, before he did the 242s. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, so the, he the he kid, decides he decides to take a week off, go to Ocean City with his pals, and all kinds of hijinks ensue. You know, he's out on the boardwalk, everybody's staring at him and coming up to him and feeling him. You know, like he just washed up on the sand or something. And uh, <laughs> but he's uh, but just go go check. Yeah, he was like a sea creature that uh, washed up on the beach. That was your best joke ever, man. That was freaking good. your hot pot, baby. Well, you know how you know how a jellyfish yeah, washes yeah, up and everybody's yeah, poking yeah, at it. <laughs> Everybody was poking at Kirk like he just washed Leave up. A hot point. Leaving a hot point. That's what Rickles always said. Right. That's right. All, All right. So let's look. talk about why we call you the uh, the Gump of Strength Sports. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. I mean, I get it. I read. I, I don't know if you guys actually went to the trouble to read the book, but in the book, Forrest Gump, <clears throat> he was actually gigantic. He was six foot three and two hundred and forty five pounds with an eight percent body fat percentile. You mean not like Tom Hanks? <laughs> not like Tom Hanks, baby. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. What was like, he squatting? Uh, like The Rock. He was built like, well, he was, a, he was, uh, I can't say the R word. He was uh, mentally challenged. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Uh, <clears throat> right. And physically, all the stuff it was just a series of episodes, but the, the, the gump uh, tale was that this, this kid below average intelligence found himself kind of of, through no fault of his own in these a series of incredible situations. Right. Right. And he's just living his life. And all of a sudden he's with mm, Richard Nixon or he's in, you know, the yeah. Mekong Delta or he's, you know, right. in, you know or he's uh, whatever. And another episode, another episode, another episode. And it's like, uh, no one would believe it. And, you know, I kind of, yeah, there, there's a part of me that's like, I was just a, an average guy. With average genetics, good athlete, not a great athlete, good athlete. Um, but at a very early age, I got introduced into a strength culture that existed in my neighborhood, which was suburban Washington, D.C. And I got uh, hooked into a, uh, <clears throat> a network of older Olympic weightlifters. And these guys were kick ass on a on a regional level, right? I mean, these guys traveled. They'd like go to Baltimore and, you know, have meets in the Stevador Hall against the, you know, the best Olympic lifters in Baltimore, you know. And uh, then everyone would go to York because York was only from us. What What's York from D.C., Jimmy? 100 miles? Wow. Not even that, right? Not even that, right? An hour and a half. Yeah. <clears throat> so for any big competition... In the D.C. area, particularly the northern, northwest D.C. and Montgomery County area, also the PG. PG was very, very heavy. There you go. Heavy lifting, man. Yeah, that's Jimmy's Jimmy's home turf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we would uh, gather, and they would carpool up to York for the National Olympic Lifting and the National Powerlifting Championships. I had my own career going at the time, but I started lifting at 11. Uh, and a kid named Ralph Caton, who lived a couple houses down, he had a 110-pound weight set in his basement. 
And in the summertime, it's hot as hell in suburban D.C., so we go down in the cool, unfinished basement and just mm. lift this 110-pound set. And I, yeah, cool. I got into it. Everything was overhead, right, or curl. But because you have a barbell sitting at your feet, the natural thing for a kid to do is try to put it overhead mm. some way, right? Yeah. We didn't have a bench. We didn't have squat racks. We didn't have any of that. So what do you do? Well, you can pick it up and curl it. You can clean it. You can press it overhead. I don't know. What else? Front squat it. Yeah. Where were you it. guys? Now, you were you were looking at muscle magazines back then, so you kind no, of had no, an No, 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 no. We were too young. No, no, no. At 11, we were, we're too young. We're still comic book baby boys. All right. So you're just kind of we're, lift, we're, messing around, lifting these weights over yeah, your head. Super, but we want to be superheroes like, uh, like we see in the comic books, uh, Green Lantern, Flash. Superman, yeah. Batman, uh, you know, all of them had, you know, great physiques. What do we mean? Wide shoulder, narrow waist, good symmetry, low body fat, yeah. right? That's the physiques that comic book heroes presented. So that was the first uh, male masculine image. I didn't get it from my father, who was an intellectual Irishman, who was unathletic. He was an athletic supporter. He loved athletics. He supported me, but he was himself. He had no physique at all. Wasn't, you know, didn't run the family genetically from, from his side. So, but anyway, so I got, I got lifting with Ralph and we didn't know what we were doing. Just push shit overhead. But his, his, uh, cousin, uh, Mike Katie was a seasoned Olympic lifter, 165 pound guy. And he, he came over because, he gave Ralph the 110 pound set because he got a, his first Olympic weightlifting set, right? Mm -hmm. So through then it was all of a sudden now I know a season lifter. So he saw that I had potential and that I was into it. So I got in with him and I got in with his friends, an ever widening circle, right? And I'm just a kid. By the time I was 14, I was competing. And, uh, you know, I was competing in the DCAAU and, uh, you know, yeah. uh, what would I be weighing? I'd be weighing 170, 160. I'd be lifting the 165 pound class, probably pressing 205, you know, snatching 180, clean and jerk, what, 245, something like okay, that. Okay, so and wait a minute. Are, the, the, sorry, the 165 pound class. I mean, you're yeah. lifting against other guys that are how old? Well, it depends. I can lift against guys my own age, and I can lift against open division. I'd be okay. getting my ass. My, I'd I mean, be getting it, killed in the open division. But at fourteen, but it didn't I, matter. And especially back in those days, there wasn't many fourteen-year-olds that were competing, was there? Oh, uh, it was a different era, buddy. There, the Olympic weightlifting was a big deal. I, I had a. a a club in high school. I had a weightlifting club that existed in my high school. There wasn't have, lifting back then. Did you have that, Jim? Did you have any kind of a, a lifting club in high school? No, man. You know, by the time I got there, they, they just got rid of everything, and that's when everybody started doing drugs. That's they got rid of all the sports, all the clubs. And what played. was your era? My era was the '60s. Yeah, was so I was. Were you the eighties? I think you were early eighties, right? Late seventy, early eighties. Late yeah, 70s. I was mid eighties to late eighties. Yeah, yeah. I graduated. You got it. Similar. So, but anyway, so so I got 
in a higher circle of friends. Then in high school, we had a guy named Roy Pat Mowney who appeared out of nowhere. He was from Boston. He was a transfer teacher. So he started a weightlifting club in our high school. So all of a sudden, he started packing the and we were uh, we were a tough tough suburban school. We were not. This wasn't Potomac or Churchill or this wasn't Rich Montgomery County. Yeah, this well, was back rich. then the suburbs were so blue collar, man. It was it yeah, was yeah, yeah. So um, we had a good genetic selection. We had a full team. And he'd put us in the little yellow school bus and haul us around to different other schools, and we'd compete. <clears throat> we did real good. And the main, the power place was Gonzaga High School in northwest Washington, D.C. Yeah. And that's that was where we we, we ended up training in Gonz- at Gonzaga. Gonzaga put on the regional championship competitions. They hosted all the, I, I got introduced to my first bodybuilding competitions you know, at Gonzaga, uh, was the center of all things iron related. Um, I saw Paul Anderson, uh, I thought I was 14 years old and he was at the Silver Spring Boys Club in combination. They had, of course they had Olympic lift competition. I don't know, let's say Mr. Probably be the metropolitan area DC AAU championship. And then they'd have, you know, Mr. DC, and then they'd have Paul Anderson. And he would uh, he would barnstorm around the country. This would be one of his whistle stops. He was raising money or what? Yeah, he was uh, raising money for the youth home. Okay. In, in Georgia. In, in, it was in Vidalia, I think, Vidalia. The Paul Anderson youth home, youth home in Vidalia. So he'd travel around, and he had his special squat bar was curved and had a pad in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was about it though. Other than that, he, that was, they had the squat bar in himself. He used your weights <clears throat> The you know, he didn't, there's no question. He wasn't bringing his own weights with him. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was no question of that. He was using our weights. Um, and, um, he came to lift. So we were, I think we were one of like, 28 stops he was going to make in this, you know, like in, you know, two months. He was on a barnstorm tour around the country raising, and he was a Christian minister. Did you know of him? You did, right? Oh, hell yeah. And how, how excited were you when he was cut? Oh, I, I was, I was, uh, well, if, it, if, um, if it was a different rated program, I'd use different language, but I was extremely excited. <laughs> yeah, be careful with that. Oh, I am so careful. I am as careful as. Uh, <laughs> but whatever he was doing, he was doing it like no. he was he was performing he weighed, every other day. He, right? he was an alien from another planet. Yeah. So he was squad. He was squad. No, let me lay the table, baby. First of <laughs> all, the way he looked, he was huge, and he was not. He looked like a damn. Oh, excuse me. He looked like a dinosaur. You can say damn. I, 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 I didn't. No, I, I, no, I was going to say darn. So anyway, uh, he was five foot nine, 360 pounds, but he moved like a cat and he was tight. Right. He wasn't a fat guy. Now you look at pictures and he's got like a, a large girth, but I mean, he was solid, baby. 
And so it was like he didn't waste a lot of time. She said uh, first he was going to do the clean and press. At the time, the world record was 418 pounds by Yuri Vlasov. This was, what, 1964? Yes, 1964. So uh, he came out and he warmed up on the platform. And I don't know, I think 220, I'm going to say 225, 275, 315, 365. And then uh, 420, right? And the clean was harder than... Yeah, the record at the time was 418, yeah. you know, and, and the clean was harder than the press. He looked like he could have done five with it. Later in the same tour, he did 450. Wow. Jeez. Right. But with him, the hard part was the clean because he, he was just awkward. He had something weird with one. He had one hand that had a pinky permanently extended. Mm. If you look at any of the photos, he had... It, I think it's his right hand. He's got like his, his little finger is like always extended. Like when he's drinking tea. His pinky yeah, he's he's drinking tea, so he couldn't right. grip with it on that side then. No. So no. he was at a so, disadvantage. Wow. Yeah. Then a clean. Yeah. And he, it was, uh, the clean was not a comfortable movement for him, right? Mm-hmm. Well, his arm was so damn big, man. Oh, man. He had to pull that thing. I mean, he, I mean, you talk about, he pulled that thing up to his collarbones before he, went to dip for it you know what i mean yeah so anyway he did that and he he was wearing his combat boots right oh and he had a bathing suit he had on a stretchy bathing suit and a t-shirt that said uh, a fellowship of christian athletes with a cross on it so that's what he was wearing and no belt so then uh there was no pa or anything so then they just brought the squat bar out and i don't know they put it up to whatever 400 pounds and he did some warm-ups anyway make a long story short he had they had hundreds there there's old smooth hundreds made out of you know they weren't olympic hundreds they were like yeah smooth iron hundreds yeah i don't know what they were but they're like look weird looking smooth hundreds so they brought some of those out and he worked up to 900 and he did 900 for five Man. And it was just like, bam, 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 bam. And he racked it. And then he grabbed the microphone and he started talking about Jesus. Now, Marty, <laughs> when he was doing that 900, he wasn't using knee wraps or anything. No, 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 no. Totally just another whistle stop. <laughs> right? I mean, That's he had to be crazy. in Philadelphia. He had to be in Philadelphia the next night. To do it again. Yeah, and then he had to be in New York the following night, and then, you know, Detroit, and then Buffalo, you know what I mean? And that was what he was doing. So he wasn't extending himself at any one time. But that's how that's how strong and yeah, that's how strong he was. But he was he was built like a freak. I mean, the Russians called him uh, the wonder <laughs> of nature. They called him the wonder of nature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he built his power with his squatting. That was his main thing. He was a squatter and a presser. He could push anything overhead. At Muscle Beach, he push-pressed 560. What? Off the racks. He took it out of the squat racks, right? Yeah. And he, he pushed overhead 560. It was like, yeah, that's what I could do if I didn't have to clean it. Yeah. Mm. So he was a big influence. And then again, in high school, uh, I'm with the lifting team and we're getting around with those guys. Now, all of a sudden, I'm a, a, a big deal high school kid. I won my first national 
teenage title at age 17 when I was still in high school. So I had it going on, man. You know, I was, uh, uh, I was, uh, I was the protege. And you didn't play football or anything. What happened with that? Oh football? yeah, I did. Uh, yes, oh, I you sure did? did. Yeah. Where'd so, you go? Coach? I went to Wheaton. I went to Richard Montgomery. Did you get kicked out of Wheaton? Uh, it's a long story. We shouldn't probably <laughs> get into it right here, but there was some office, some academic issues involved. Yeah. I had some grade problems. Back then, they actually really graded people. You know what I mean? And, and so anyway, let's uh, get back to this. So the lifting was going good. Uh, won, won the Nationals. But in addition, I'm seeing these incredible lifters, both local and nationally, because they're all coming into York for both the National Olympic Lift Championships. We see the best American lifters. And the then new sport of the National Powerlifting Championships, right? Because powerlifting was made was formalized in 1964. So I'd have been running two to three years. So I'd go with these guys to these meets, and they'd stay over. They'd stay over like two nights, like you know, go up on Saturday morning, stay Saturday night, stay Sunday, because on Sunday they'd have a York picnic in the York Park, which now, Marty, is cool. Now, Marty, you switched from Olympic lifting to powerlifting. Because... That was until 1972. That was oh, a long 72. time later. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was a long time later. This is, I'm still right. a baby. I'm in the 66, 67. Yeah. What, what, did, what did the Olympic lifters think of powerlifting becoming a sport? Was it? They didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't matter. And a lot of them did um the russians were big squatters yeah right they were strong in their squats and they were strong in their power cleans and they weren't using bands and chains you know what i mean they were just using the barbell on the floor and they'd squat right and that's what the olympic lifters were doing and but i tell you what they got it down to the point where um a lot of the top American guys were doing one lift per week, like press on Monday, snatch on Tuesday, clean and jerk on Wednesday, squat on third, you know, boom, boom. So they were experimenting. Some of the guys were trying uh, low, vo- lower volume, higher intensity, instead of the usual Olympic lifting of pound it, pound it, pound it, pound it, every day, every day, every day, long sessions. Um, but with the power lifters, now I fell in with Hugh Cassidy, who's, I'm still just a kid. He's on, he's on his way up. He's trying to push up from the 242 pound to the super heavyweight pound class. He's won the national championship to 242. So I'm in this group that goes with him to see the national championships. And as luck had it, I sit next to him in the front row and we're sitting there watching George Friend and Peanuts West and Bob Weaver and, you know, all the, the great old time, John Cantor, uh, all the old great lifters. And I'm sitting there with Cassidy. He's offering all this, you know, rye commentary on what's going on. And uh, Jim, I know you want to say, uh, he's told his story a million times. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Cassidy would go around with a cooler, a picnic cooler with him at the time because he was trying to push his body weight up 
Yeah. Back then, they didn't have bomb scares and, you know, uh, you know all the security check issues that they did now. But he would carry this cooler around with him. He brought this cooler with him to the National Powerlift Championship, set it down. He had, like, I don't know, 11 sandwiches and two half, two half gallons of whole milk, a pie, Beautiful. you know, a bunch yeah. of fruit, you know, some, uh, what, uh, corn salad, whatever, you know. And, and he just started eating this stuff. We were probably there. What five hours? Did he offer you guys any? No, hell no. That, then there wouldn't be enough for him, you <laughs> dumbass. What's wrong with you? Eleven sandwiches, huh? Oh my god! I mean, He's got my grim- record beat. It looked like a. It looked like a. What a family of six would buy at the grocery store for a week. <laughs> oh, and then we went out to dinner at seven. <laughs> But you know what? He pushed his body weight up from 242 to 297. Bang. How about that? In 18 months. 18 months. And won the world championships. Yeah, won the world championship. And when he won the worlds, he reduced back down to 195 and won physique competitions. And he was a sculpture and a teacher. He was the man of man. He was a renaissance man of men. Yeah, he was... And he helped you with your writing. Oh, he was my writing mentor, him and Bob Smith. Now, was he an English teacher? Special needs teacher. Okay. But he just knew. He knew what it should look like, what it should sound like. I was not tight with him. Then. I actually went to his house a couple times. He had a mentor named Glenn Middleton who became a mentor to me. I was like the teen kid, and Glenn was would always referee at these meets and Glenn was a big time dude with Bechtel, this huge engineering firm that had an office in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So Glenn was a big deal. And so he was with the AAU and he would be the regional president and he would come in and, you know, officiate all the meets and stuff. So he saw me. So he was very good to me. He like got me jobs and stuff. He like got me a job with a guy named Bob, uh, uh, yeah, Bob Smith, who owned the in-town Connecticut, got me a job down there. Um, he got me tied in with uh, these lifters when they went on these road trips. So, uh, but Glenn was a big-time mentor of Hughes, and uh, Glenn actually brought Hugh a lot of training advice from when he trained with Norbert Skamansky in Detroit, and a lot of what Hugh passed along to us he and Middleton formulated, right, the strategies about, oh, we're going to take the best of these hardcore Olympic lift guys and apply it to this new sport of powerlifting. Well, we like the way they pull it off the floor and we like the way they squat, you know, but past that, we got to figure some stuff out. So that they were innovators in that sense. I knew them. I knew of them. I hung out with them on the periphery. I did not train with him. I didn't start training with him until the 70s. But at the time, um, he was on his way up to. And, and again, I'm still a young guy. Now, pursuing my own career, uh, coming out of high school, I was not going to go out on to college. I was like, no, that is, I am just not, not going to do that. I had the whole Jack Kerouac hit the road urge and I had some um, options. I had some invitations to go to the West coast and visit and 
what uh, what true alpha male <laughs> with a yeah. few bucks in their pocket doesn't want to go to the West Coast and visit beautiful women. And back then you could do it cheaply, you know, just pile in a van. Yeah, 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 yeah. You sure can. You can hitch. We we hitchhiked. Yeah, really. Yeah, we hitchhiked one time across the country and back. It wasn't a big deal back then. You weren't no, going to get axe murdered. Like, yeah. you, you weren't going to get axe murdered. No. <laughs> yeah. And you'd usually get cool people to pick you up. People yeah. who had hitchhiked before, and they're like, oh, I know how it is, dude, standing yeah, out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going, uh, we're only going uh, 1,200 miles. All right. Well, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did that trip take you to, to uh, hitchhike? Oh, uh, we US? were back and forth. We were, I was uh, vagabonding back and forth between D.C. Uh, first time, and, and then I got in a, in the commune down at 1724 S Street for a couple of years. That was yeah. a trip in itself. And we were doing a little lifting in the basement. I had planned to go to the, the Teenage Nationals one year, but... Uh, that didn't quite work out. But so when, when uh, you guys were hitchhiking and doing all this these trips across the U.S., I mean, what happened to your lifting? Did you find stops? Uh, you know, whiskey yeah, stops kind of, along kind the way. Kind of, kind of, yeah, I kind of fell to the side. We'd we'd, we'd kind yeah. of I'd kind of burn out on that a little bit. It was time to kind of try some other things. Mm-hmm. Got into the martial arts thing. Um, still would lift. Uh, got back into it in Portland. Um, never never totally lost touch with it got back into it in a big way um coming out of coming out of portland oregon sam laprinzi's gym i think i told the story about when i'm when ken patera yeah you wrote we an article about it yeah. yeah 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 we were looking for kenny out there and when that didn't happen it's like we collapsed back to dc and uh, again you know the dc scene was DC lifting scene is always on fire. I remember one time you, you were telling, we were emailing back and forth, and you said at that time there was pockets in the country that had like a bunch of great lifters. So you had the Maryland, you had Different Texas, style. the young boys, you had some in California. Remember all that? Yeah, and they would, yes, and they would, uh, Dylan, Bob Dylan once said when he first started out touring, he said every area of the country was like a different country. Yeah. He said, well, now, well, he said now you go. He said every place you go, they have the same mall with the same stores. And, yeah. oh, look, there's a Best Buy. Oh, look, there's, That's you, right. you know, there's a sameness. He said back then, he said, you, he said, you'd go to southwest Louisiana like Baton Rouge. And he said, you'd think you were in, you know, Haiti. right and you go to new england and you know and or 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 also you got to remember air conditioning wasn't really didn't get invented until 1965 before that man the southwest those places were unlivable man they were hot huh (laughs) mexico arizona all these uh, new mexico arizona uh southwest texas all these places that are doing great now could you imagine them back before that when there was no air conditioning? Oh, Florida itself, man. Florida, great example. Yeah, right? I couldn't imagine. So that, that was a, that made for a different country. Yeah, and that only happened in, in in the late widespread air conditioning. Really didn't happen until the until the late sixties. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, 
so with us, it was the same thing, you know, and, and so different regions like the guys that would come out of one part, like the Dallas part of Texas, be like Ronnie Ray and those guys, they would have a completely different style than the guys who came out of Houston or, or the guys who came out of Brownstone, which would be like Doug Young, mm. Young Brothers and those guys. And they'd have a completely different style than uh, the guys in Mississippi, which at the time Fred Hatfield was in Mississippi. He was training with a bunch of guys down there. Again, totally different from what the guys in, in Scranton were doing, which would be Jim Williams training with John Cuck. Mm. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. and, you know, and then on the West Coast, you'd have um, completely different techniques from in L.A. Uh, you know, you'd have Pat Casey and the L.A. guys, which were they would be more inclined to do the bands and the chains and that they would put pads in their chests and bounce the bars off and stuff. They would be more innovative that, that way, also with their gear and equipment. Whereas if you move north up to San Francisco and then up to Portland, they're much more old school and strict. And San Francisco has always been a really strong Olympic weightlifting town. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's interesting how some areas of the country, you know, Minnesota, Minnesota, great, fantastic strength area, Minnesota. Wow. Wow. So many great champions. Yeah, Oklahoma too with. uh, Oh, and Oklahoma. Doug, yeah. uh, Oh, Doug and and, uh, the Furness brothers and and then Dennis Wright, which was their medical. Yeah, Dennis Wright was a coach. And then uh, the, 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 oh, my God, who's the great black champion? Walter Thomas. Walter Thomas. Oh, yeah, incredible. Uh, Oklahoma is a fantastic. And those guys would train completely different. Every region would train different. All, now, all roads led to Rome, too, if you think about it, you know. Well, it got homogenized. Yeah. Because everybody got access to the same information. So everybody, like, took what they knew and put it in a blender. And they threw out what didn't work. It's just like martial arts, man. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that, the, that the, like, the Chicago guys which would be like the Ernie France, Ed Cohn guys, and then like the Maryland guys, which would be like the Mark Dimaduck, Mark Chalet, Hugh Cassidy guys. I mean, when they found out that they were doing the same things, yeah. that was profound. And found, and when the, they found out that the Dennis Wright, Doug Furness guys were doing it the same way. So you know, I don't think anybody's exceeding what those guys are doing. I mean, some of these Russian, there's some Russian kids I think are. When you went to these meets and it was a power at the meet and everybody came from all over the country afterwards, you guys had beers and you talked about training and what everybody was doing and, and, and get ideas or what? Well, after church. Yeah. After church. <laughs> yeah. What was that church called? <laughs> oh my God. Do we want to get into that? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Marty, real quick on that. Okay. So the, Everything was becoming homogenized and everything, but yes. did it also become the same thing between the Americans and the Russians? Were you guys? No, no, no. They were in the Stone Ages. Okay. Uh, so they were trying to find wall... out what we were doing. Oh, yeah. First, the wall was up. When the wall was yeah. up, that actually kind of worked to their advantage. But when the wall came down, we knew everything they knew, but they were 
uh, it took them a long time to get back up to zero, right? They they were no they were no longer in the cutting edge like you'd say the you'd say the Leipzig Sports Institute and everybody would like perk up back in the day. <clears throat> I mean, you know, the East Germans and the Russians, man, they were on top of things mm. back in the prime. But those those days are long gone. They yeah. it really ended with Brezhnev. I mean, I'm sorry, with um, Gorbachev. That was kind of the end of that. The best is when they parked the the giant ship in the Montreal Harbor that was outfitted as a hospital so oh, they could drug yeah. test their athletes. Yeah. So at the, so at what was the 76 Montreal Olympics, they, they had no positives, no Russians tested positive. It was incredible. Yeah. They had an entire ship docked wow. and that's all they did. And then if, if one of their athletes came up hot, they'd go, Oh, uh, Yuri got injured. Yeah. <laughs> Pulled hamstring. <laughs> yes. So we're entering, uh, we're entering Jan here at the last moment. No, he's fine. He's perfect, yes. <laughs> so, so that was that era. State-sponsored drugging of athletes mm. for, for prestige. Yeah? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the 70s, again, it was a strange era for, for strength sports. The good news was is that we still, in Olympic weightlifting died. Now, that was a big deal. That really started go, falling apart in 1968. By 1972, when they banned the press, that was it. Now, was 72 the first time that the Olympics didn't have the press, or was it after 72? At the, at the games, at the 72 Olympic Games, they had the press. At the meeting afterwards, they said, that's it. Wow. We're getting rid of the press. And, well, and that was I mean, your that, lift. That was a lot of people's lift. That, that was, was the strength. Lift, yeah. That kept all the big, strong guys in. <clears throat> yeah, was it because of the lean back? Guys were cheating. Listen, these are... These are guys that can detect a knee touch on a snatch, and they can't detect if somebody's got too much lean back in a press. No, they could, they could judge it just fine. They wanted it gone. They wanted a shorter competition. Do you know what they do that's so stupid, Jimmy? Do you know that they still they go one at a time? Rather than do the round system, right, where, you know, uh, you know if you have 11 lifters, you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Right. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and three, three. These guys go one. Okay, what's the next lift? Two. Oh, he's going to repeat. Oh, he gets two minutes to rest, and then he gets a third minute. Okay. Oh, he missed. Is he going to repeat? Okay, he gets three minutes. Okay, so <laughs> it's like, what are you guys doing? Mm. This is suicide, right? But yeah. they insist on doing it. It's just like, um, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's like watching uh, Marcus of Queensbury boxing or something. Yeah, right? they weren't so, uh, cognizant. So, so weightlifting died, just yeah. died. Now, at the same time, I'll tell you what came on was female bodybuilding, right? All of a sudden... It, when females started going to gyms, the potential gym population just doubled. Mm -hmm. And by the 80s, when the, when the fitness re the fitness revolution hit, 
that was a gold mine. And it was, it wasn't, at they, first they thought, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to cater to powerlifting. We're going to get more males to participate. Women will never want to do what we do. Weeder saw it. Weeder was, Joe Weeder was one of the first ones to say, hey, you know what? This, this woman thing could catch on. Women going to the gym. Yeah. It, it was genius because it doubled the potential market. Lisa Lyon, you remember her? She was oh, the- yeah, all the early, and the early girls looked good. Carla Dunlap, yeah, uh, Rachel McFalsh. Um, they looked sexy, and oh, Corey was beautiful. Yeah, I still like them now. So. Pardon? I still like them now. Well, I guess you would, but you're a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they're a little too big now, maybe. I mean, with all the... Whatever, you know, man. Do they make you feel less adequate? The way it's evolved. It no, I just don't like the... I like the the figure is good, and I think I still think the CrossFit girls have some of the best physiques. <laughs> they're on drugs, too. Hey. But some of them come are, on, yeah. Come on. Come on, this is a, this is not that kind of show. This is a family Allegedly. show. Allegedly. Allegedly. That. All right, so let's get back to this thing. So so I'm seeing all this stuff. So yeah, that that part of me is Forrest Gumpish because I am again, I'm just an average guy. Yeah, I'm winning national championships, but I'm being mentored by these incredible guys. It's almost like how can you not be pulled up? And I can I'm just a kid. I can dedicate my whole life to this, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my parent, my, I don't have a mother. My father is working all the time. We're administered by a, a 80 year old housekeeper. It's my rough. brother, my brother and I just run wild. We're buck wild. Right. During these, during these years, you did the commune, then you got back into training. So now you switched after the press was banned to the powerlifting. Where were you training then? Well, uh, it was an interesting time because uh, there was a period of time where I was uh, training with Hugh Cassidy in his basement and at the same time studying under this country's leading Tai Chi Bagua Xingyi expert, Robert Smith. So I had the hardest of the hard, Cassidy and the softest of the soft and Smith. And... It was interesting that both of their philosophies merged. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot. That, like in, in Tai Chi, they talked so much about root. Yes. Sinking, right? And Cassidy's like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did they define that? And and Smith, and so I'd take that back to Smith and goes, oh, well, let him know that we have a 60-40 ratio depending upon the uh, angle of the knee to the, uh, <laughs> the ankle. Oh, okay. Oh, and then Cassie go, um, what about stance width? Right. Yeah. And eventually it, you know, you know, and I'm in the middle of this. They never met. Wow. It all went back and forth through me. Right. But I, it, it um, the, the techniques that we teach that, or that Cassidy used, you look at Hugh, the way he squats and, you look at a Tai Chi master, the, the way that they stand, and it's the same way. It's structural right. architecture. Mm. And that's what I learned from Cassidy, and I learned it from Smith. Structural architecture. And, yes, it's difficult to move in a full range of motion while maintaining structural architecture, but that's how you become maximally strong and maximally muscular. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So I'm learning this. 
And at the same time, I'm able to because I'm kind of skinny. I'm 5'10 and like, I don't know, 205. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not scaring anybody. So it's like, okay, uh, I think I need to get a little weight. So it was perfect timing because you're starting to slam calories. You're young. You got a blazing metabolism. Almost anything you throw down the hatch turns into muscle and you just, you just push it up each week, a little bigger, a little stronger each week, a little bigger, a little stronger, right? Jim, you know, the momentum. Yeah. You get that synergy going each week. It's, and if you can get bigger and stronger, that is so much better than getting smaller and weaker. Right, Jimmy? Well, when you gain that weight, man, you just feel stronger every time you go in the gym. Because you are. Yeah. Yeah. You are. Right? It's self-fulfilling. Yeah. Eat your way through sticking points. <laughs> yes. Yes. What a motto. And beer is good for recovery. Right? Mm. I mean, what a, what a world, right? Yeah. Well, it's got chromium picolinate in there, right? <laughs> you know, just that. Yeah. Marty, can you just tell the lasagna story real quick? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Listen, people don't know what it takes. Tell them what it takes, man. Well, um, I'm a pretty good guy around the kitchen. So uh, I made what I discovered is that I, I really, in order to increase the number of calories, I would make a, a, a I went to a kitchen outlet and I found they had these giant pans, four inches high. So I said, you know what? I'm going to make a gigantic lasagna, sausage lasagna with homemade marinara. And man, I took my time and, you know, it was beautiful and it was perfect. And I think it had, oh, I don't know, three pounds of ricotta and two pounds of mozzarella and, you know, on and on. And it it just, and everybody looked at it just went, ooh, ah. And I cut it up and it it divided into 24 four-inch squares. And these, these suckers are four to five inches high, right? <laughs> so I, I would eat a square for breakfast every morning when I got up with a quart of milk. Mm. That's how I'd start my day. And then for lunch, you pack, <laughs> then for lunch, you pack then, 11 uh, squares in your lunch box and take and that off to work. At lunch, you go out and you get a whole <laughs> rotisserie chicken. But right? then the guys, the, guys, all you, the guys were asking about it. And you had a little business going. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Then the guys at the gym, they were like, well, that's genius. Because they, they want to gain too, right? And they're all they're all like, hey, we're so tired of uh, uh, drinking Slurpees and uh, eating uh, Arthur Treacher's fish and chips. We're bored. So it's like, all right, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, you want to buy a pan of this? Yeah. Uh, how much? Uh, you know, whatever, $25, $25 you know, and it's. The ingredients are not that much. They weren't that much back then. So I was doing pretty good. I had a pretty good business. And it was like, you get sick of it after a while. It's like, am I living life to be a lasagna factory? <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, I am making $25 a pan, but God damn. I'm mean, excuse me. Golly, this is taking up all my free time. Right? It's just not worth it. Lasagna not worth factory. It. I, need, I need to live life. I'm getting you a shirt. I'm making you one that says Lasagna Factory on it. i tell you what. I've still got my lasagna chops, buddy. <laughs> going on? So, okay. So at that point, and again, I'm hanging out. This is Marty. I'm hanging out with world champion Hugh Cassidy. I'm hanging out with, with 
the first guy to bring Tai Chi into America, Robert Smith. This guy wrote books with Don Drager. This, he's known. And Cassidy was the great writer of, of strength fiction. And Smith wrote 15 books. And those are the guys that mentored me in my writing. Mm, wow. Right? Yeah. Cassidy got me, was the first guy to get me published because he co-authored with me my first three articles. He said, don't worry about it, kid. He said, I put my signature on. He says, I got, he said, I'll golly well get it published. <laughs> and it did. And that, that launched me. And I got my first published article in like, I don't know, 1978. Now, you had those guys. You had your lifting friends. But yes, you had different friends in, in a, the literature world or how... What were, did you had? I had a lot of rock and roll friends at the time. Okay, okay. Because you were uh, really into the guitar and all that, right? Yeah, I was, I was a, this is just a different. There was a different era back then. Like right. uh, a guy that I had grown up with, very very interesting guy named uh, Daryl Klein, Daryl Junior Klein. What a story on him, man! Uh, well, he so, so, he yeah, ended so. up. He ended up. I grew up with him. We grew up in the same neighborhood. His band got so big, he ended up playing for Bill Clinton in the White House. I mean, this, I mean, it was huge rags to riches story. Yeah. And I was there. I was his, I was his boy. I was the guy who would walk in with his guitar case. You right? talk about the, the Forrest Gump of lifting. Yeah. Also, Hendrix yeah. and all that stuff, man. Yeah. I mean, all, oh, yeah. And the, the, music, row, the, the, the music that we saw. At the Wheaton Youth Center, which I walked to to see groups, uh, let's see, when I'm uh, 17 years old, uh, I saw Spirit with Randy California and guitar, incredible band. Mm -hmm. uh, and the band that opened for them was on their first American tour. It was some English group called Led Zeppelin. No mm -hmm. way. Yeah, and they loaded no their own and, and they loaded their own equipment in in Wheaton. Yep, at the Wheaton Youth Center, baby. Wow. Yeah, and the next week was Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck. Wait, wait, did Zeppelin blow you away? Um, yes, but I mean, they weren't. They weren't. They were just. Uh, they weren't the formative. They were formative. They, they, you know, they hadn't even cut their first album. And then they had the, the first album, but they were on the tour to support that. They were very embryonic. Raw, yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah, you yeah. Had, and then you had Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart the next weekend? Yeah, and then, it, you know, remember Barry Richards? <laughs> no. DJ. He was the DJ. He put all this stuff on. Okay. That was wild. And then I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with Junior, Daryl, Daryl Klein, and, you know, we're, like, backstage with Tina Turner. And I think JP knows the donut story, don't you, JP? Uh, yeah. You better not tell it here, though. That's some story. No, we can't. We can't tell the donut we'll story. We'll get fired off the air from, from the donut story. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, we have many, many interesting <laughs> stories that happened in the '80s, the '70s, and the '80s. But when uh, did you see Hendrix? When did you see Hendrix? Oh, uh, there was. I had a friend named Mike Colburn, and Mike was an excellent guitar player who actually had a. Um, strong regional hit his band was december's children uh -huh. so he took me to was it uline arena i think it was remember uline arena that's where they held the wrestling matches no nah. yeah and they had uh hendrix with there and who the hell was with him 
But Hendrix was um, a god. Yeah, so when you saw him, yeah. what was it like, man? Just the whole thing. It's an alien. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. It's a, These are um, space creatures. The this, isn't, this isn't the boy next door. The talent is just like... Yeah, this is... this is, And again, it's you're seeing it everywhere because it wasn't just him. It was like the Beatles are doing what Sergeant Pepper, the Stones are doing Beggar's Banquet. I mean... Everybody's at their peak. The Jefferson Airplane. Everybody's doing. Wow. Joe Cocker's coming on the scene, right? Man, Johnny Winter, I'm out. Yeah, Joplin too. Yeah, all of them. Everybody in the world is exploding. And all the and, and all we the... and we thought it would last forever. Yeah, just I'm another day in the park, forever. right? Mm-hmm. This shit goes. On. Oh, excuse me. This goes on forever, right? Yeah. We didn't know. It's just a golden little slice of time, like living when Mozart was alive or something. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, that's yeah, really strange. Cool. And DC was a hotbed. I also got in uh, another Forrest Gump thing. I got in with the Shri Chinmoy people. So oh three, yeah, three, three of them. I got to meet. Yes, you know, McLaughlin and Nardo Waldron. You know, Frank Zane followed that guy forever, man. So did. Oh Bill. yeah, 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 yeah. He was. They're nice people. Yeah, but let me ask you a question. He wasn't really doing those feats of strength. Oh, he was moving the the weight. That little yeah. quarter of inch, but it, yeah. I mean, I think you could have done it. Yeah, of course I could have. A little skinny. Yeah. I don't know, Jim. You're kind of <laughs> smallish lately. True, true. I don't want to jump too far ahead on that. So I, I think that I think that the kind of the end of this saga right now is is everything led to a period where for five years we trained at Hughes, and yeah. the core group was myself, Marshall Peck, and Joe Ferry. Mark Dimiduck would come in and out of that scene too. Mark Chalet at the time was apprenticing under Larry Pacifico in Dayton. Yeah. And he was out working with Larry, well, working for Larry in one of Larry's gyms. Mm. And, uh, oh, yeah, apparently, now this is Mark telling me this. Apparently they had Mike Bridges and John Topsaglue, and I don't know if Joe Ladnier was there. But they had all these these great lifters out there, and, and they were, like, making them teach aerobics class. Mark says, I hate aerobics class. <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> so so Mark came back in 1980, and that's when he opened Chalet's Fitness. And at that, that point in time, and we were competing heavily. Uh, Joe Ferry and Marshall Peck were serious guys, and we'd have a continual influx of other lifters that would come into Cassidy's and lift with us. Yeah. And he had Hugh. Hugh would come in and out like a ghost. You know, he had, he had a life, but he'd come in on a, on a regular basis and just critique you. And it was just like, but a boom, but a boom, but a boom. See you later. When you were, when you guys were doing those heavy pulls that he liked those high pulls, was that with straps or without heaves, 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 you straps on that? That's a good question. Because I was sitting I, in this morning, I was like, did they even have straps back then? Yeah, yeah. He would. He was see. He was smart on it, and he said straps are overload. Yeah, right. He said you have overload in other lifts. Don't you do partial squats? Don't you do partial deadlifts? Right, he said right, straps right. allow you to do. He said straps in the deadlift allow you to turn a single into a triple, a triple into a five, a five into an eight. And you're bypassing the weakest link. You know? Well, your strength, you're getting extra growth-producing reps. Yeah. 
Uh, I wish I could have taught Karwaski how to use straps. I think he could have pulled 880 mm-hmm. if we could have overloaded his back. Yeah. But he was so fumble hand. He'd get down there and he'd get like crying like a baby. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. And throw him down. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like a tantrum. <laughs> you, have a little, you have a little strap tantrum. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So that takes us kind of up. And in, and in, well, I shouldn't skip over Hughes. We should go into Hughes a little bit. The Cassidy's philosophy was we train twice a week. And you work the three lifts, you work the squat, the bench, the deadlift, and you work up to your periodized number. We always, uh, we always had a 12 week periodized cycle going and you would be somewhere in that 12 weeks. And and that particular week you would have a a target number. Did you start at eights and. Yeah, I think so. Eights, fives, threes, and twos, I think. I think, uh, you know, and fives again were the central. I think it would be like two weeks of eights, two weeks of sixes, then like four weeks of fives, and then two weeks of threes and two weeks of twos. He didn't do any singles, but you might miss a double at the end. You, you know got what I mean? Two, you were like, yes, man, doubles. You know, you just want to uh, test it. Yeah, and, you know, your doubles might end up as a single. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay, too, because you'd done the damn work by that point, let me tell you. Yeah. But that wasn't the end of it. In addition to working up to your periodized single, you'd have you do two to three sets of back off. Yeah, that's a, that's a, mm-hmm. a sneaky way of putting volume in that works. Oh, God almighty. And, and, and so let's say you, let's say you, um, say you were doing five reps. You worked up to a, a heavy five, maybe okay. whatever, 585 for five, right, with right. belt and wraps. Right. So then you knock down to like, I don't know, 495 with no belt and wraps. And uh, he'd have, now nah, he'd go less than that. You'd probably go to 455, no belt and wraps, and he'd have you do two sets of eight. Mm. Oh my God. You know, and then you go bench. You get big like that, man. Same thing. Now you bench, right? So you yeah. work up to what's your top? Okay, I'm doing a five. Uh, what do you, uh, whatever, the three, 315. Okay, there's your five. Now what? Well, now you do two sets of eight. Like 265, something like 265. Marty, was that part yeah. of his? Oh, oh wait. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Don't interrupt me because we're not done. Now we go to deadlift. <laughs> Now you work up to your top set of five in the deadlift, and then he has you do two to three sets of eight in the stiff leg or off the plate. Hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. We're not done. Oh, I thought I could leave. No, you can't. Now we got to do some arms. We got to do some shoulders. Hmm. Or actually, it would be shoulders, then arms. Now, shoulders, you might get away with three sets, something. Seated front press dumbbells behind the neck something right? right and and hitting it hard five reps maybe needing a little help on the fifth you know i mean but, but push what was, and what then was, arms certainly three sets of seated curls superseted with three sets of push downs at the minimum mm-hmm. then you're done so then you're right. shaking you're right, shaking. So, so question shaking. on that, so though. Well, let me finish. Because now you've <laughs> done this. You've done this. And it's taking you two hours and 27 minutes. you got to walk up the stairs. And you got to get, get yourself yeah. 
you got to get yourself together because you're a little afraid your legs might give out on you in the walk up. And you go to the car and you sit in your you sit in your fender and you drink a half a gallon of whole milk. Yeah. And you sit there and you talk to your buddies until all the shakes subside. And then half the time you have to hold your key hand with your other hand as you put it in the ignition to stop the shaking. Mm. How about the clutch? Yeah. That was a disaster. <laughs> the clutch. <laughs> oh my God. But that's, and we did that twice a week. Okay. Now can I ask you a imagine, question? Can you imagine? Yes, sir. Sir. <laughs> Quick question on the back-offs for for more reps. Now, was that part of his strength strategy, or was at that point he was trying to, to uh, you know, actually add some size to you guys? Was it – what was – kind of killing you know name. I mean? How horrible can we make this? <laughs> Just for torture. I- I, I think mean, it's both. I think it's both, JP. I mean, I think you're getting in a lot more volume. Like just that. really slam, just, you slam calories. You can't, then, yeah. If you don't, if you don't slam calories, you can't exist. Yeah, you, you won't. Make you won't last. You won't. You won't make it. Yeah. You have to slam calories. That's what the whole thing's predicated yeah. on. Yeah. Well, I didn't say don't slam calories. I agree but, with that. I'm just trying but, to figure but, out. But it, it, it's all bases. He's covering the strength base. Yeah. On the way up. Yeah. But he's hitting the bodybuilder. The size on the way down, yeah. Yeah, on the way down, right? And he's not um, he's not compromising. You're doing I always all wondered, lift, though. Plus you're doing arms, plus you're doing shoulders. But you know what? Leave. I always, on the, back, on the back offsets, I always wondered if that's going to, and this might be dumb or whatever, but are you going to undo what you just did for the strength no, part of it? No, no. Because it's so much lighter than your than your top set. Um, and, it's, and tough, it's, it's tough work, Jimmy. I yeah, mean, you're no, you're screaming no and, you're screaming and struggling. No, on but JP saying will it take breath. away from your strength of your top set? No, it won't. I'll it, tell you what it will. You know, you know what it did take away from mm-hmm. your damn deadlift that you have to do after that. Yeah. Excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. Is. <laughs> that darn deadlift. That darn. But you know deadlift. what? When you get to the meat, Marty, you don't have to I do. Know. It amazing how your deadlift will go up oh oh man i'm telling you well that's what we're discovering with the kids that we work with on sunday they squat they bench they dead because they're they're in front of us that's the only time they get the advantage of our coaching yeah and every one of them their deadlifts go up 50 pounds in the competition yeah because they don't have to do it 25 minutes after they've just squatted Mm -hmm. they're like what we don't have to deadlift for two hours I used to, fabulous. You know, I used to crush myself in a squat and yep. I would just do a heavy single or a double once a week on a deadlift and it went up like crazy. Yeah. I like that. I had to do that. I like, I like that. that. But that's what we did with Cassidy and I con- kind of considered it um powerlift boot camp. And, yeah. the guy, and the guys that went through it, we had four world champions, not counting you, that came from that basement. Myself, Tom Mills, uh, Chalet, and Mark Dimidoff. Now, when you when you went in with Cassidy and you guys are in the basement, you when you first started with him, you're doing three times a week, right? And then cut it back to two. Oh, what was when I doing? I probably was probably. I think I think the conventional thinking at the time was you probably would have done. Oh, I don't know. You probably would have benched one bench twice a week. 
squatted front squatted regular once a week front squatted once a week probably deadlifted once a week and did i don't know some sort of a band owners yeah something once a week or more more volume maybe maybe four sessions yeah but while you're kind of like that while you're with you yeah while you're with you you guys are discovering you don't need so much volume and you start um, cutting it back are we everything was crammed into yeah, that's a lot of volume in two One horrible two and a half hour session, man. <laughs> yeah, I love that horrible. <laughs> it was it was gruesome. I mean, it, I mean, in the in the summertime, when it was hot down there, I mean, it was like, am I going to fall over? But then you walk outside, man. You oh, felt- you're, and you were so swollen. You drink that. You drink that milk, and yeah. people be like, "What? Wow, look at you! You're you're swelling." Yeah, say, man. <laughs> and if you could, if you could um, get in the requisite calories and recover, uh, it worked. Yeah, it really did. But you had to have kind of a one-dimensional existence. Yeah, well, they wanted to be great. Well, um, a little like being a sumo wrestler, I guess. Right? I mean, you're force Kirk feeding. Did for, Kirk did it for ten years. Ten years. That's right. Centered his life around it. Monastic and uh, lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, and I think that I had that that up to this point in my life, I think I was able to devote as much of my, but you know, I tell you, even at that stage, I was aware of the fact I was never going to be a great lifter. Um, when did I go to my first national championships? I went to my first national championships. I went backstage and I'm looking around at <clears throat> Paul Wren and Doyle Kennedy. And I don't know who else was backstage, uh, all the super heavyweights. Yeah. They're all my height. <laughs> and I'm weighing 220, right? And I'm going, there's no way, man. You will never be able to get that big. Never in a million years would I yeah, be able won, to. You won a bunch of IPF nationals and worlds and all kinds of stuff. I, I, in lesser level, master stuff. And I, I was never, never in the, I mean, in, in the A class. Those guys were cut above you see a, a well, gene bell in action or a danny austin or a kirk or an ed and it's that's that's uh now, now back then was the it more of a it was, it was more of a short man sport right i think it always has been always will be so yeah, it still like, is because you've seen some giant yeah. guys doing powerlifting now i mean they're you know well yeah but, but, but look at their body weight in relation to their height i mean they might be six foot five but they weigh 440 yeah yeah you see, uh-huh. what yeah. you see what I'm saying? They, ha- yeah. they have that. They have that density, mm-hmm. right? In relation to the height, that's what gives them their their incredible leverage. Seems to me, from all the the uh, articles that you've written that we've posted, the most incredible weight class was the 220 class. You know, because yeah. what yeah. Ed was in there, Chalet Sh- oh, yeah. was in there, right? Uh, oh, no, Mark was, no, no, Mark was never a 220. What was had, cash? What was cash? Jimmy was a two, yeah, he was the two twenty or for sure. So yeah. Fred, you I think that was funny. that was Fred's best best class too. Yeah. So many incredible lifters at two twenty. Yeah, that you know what that that seems like the athletic class to me. Like you sort Joe of Ladmere. You start off as a two hundred pound guy and you boost your you body know, weight up. You know how, do you know how short those guys were? They were short. Yeah. 
to be a competitive 220-pound lifter, you got to be a short guy, man. Well, you're like, what, 5'6 at, at 220? You know, wasn't uh, Cone 5'6? Oh, I'm not going to get into their heights because they get a little sensitive about it. He might be 5'7. Kirk might said he was 6'2 when he started. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a good example in terms of height to, to height to body weight ratio. Like brick. Yeah, yeah he, he has... Uh, incredible density yes. in relation to his height. Yes. You have to have that for leverage. Yeah. At the top levels. Years of it. So Do uh, we want to talk about good? Chalet on part two? Yeah, let's 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 stop it there because there's a lot of meat in the bone at Mark's place. I learned yeah. so much. Right. So uh, we gotta really get into that one. So we'll do that on part yeah, two we'll next that. time. We'll, yeah we'll kick we'll kick that down the road a little bit. And the, I think the main takeaway from Cassidy, who was the best trainer of, up till that period in my life, was this this idea that um, just concentrate you know, what eighty to ninety percent of your efforts in the three lifts and yeah. their close variance, and this idea of the the best assistance exercise for any lift is the lift that most closely resembles it. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Different hand so, grips and things. Yeah, a well, different hand grip is better than a 45. Yeah. 45 degree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not that a 45 is bad. Right. But on the hierarchy of things, he uh, Hugh had a, was very specific about his exercise hierarchy. Uh, I had some disagreements with him. I think his, his he, he had a big emphasis on the stiff leg deadlift. I think it screwed up his his technique. I think he got caught kind of halfway between a regular and a stiff leg deadlift and his technical. Mm. Uh, and I think it was due to the, that his emphasis in the on the stiff leg. But you know that's again that's uh, you know like some subtle philosophic difference between uh, you know uh, Stalin and Trotsky. <laughs> you know. Well, I think the bottom line here, Marty, is uh, you've done some incredible things and just happen to be in the right place at the right time on a lot of this stuff. I mean, it's incredible. And we're only a little like we've hit the tip of the iceberg here. So we got a lot to go. I mean, this is just unbelievable. Yeah, Marty was fortunate that he was in the embryonic stage of all this stuff from music to powerlifting to weightlifting. I mean, it was the roots of it all. I mean, this is a weightlifter's dream. I should put my brain in a robot. Well, <laughs> the brain you got now? Raise, raise funds. We need a fundraiser. Yeah. All right. All right. No, no, no. Look, Jim. Yeah. What have you been reading or what have you been seeing that has inspired you? Dude, I, I don't know if it inspired me, but Hymns of the Republic is what I just read by S.C. Gwynn. It's about the last year of the Civil War. I read that in a few days. Very good. Uh, very well researched. He, he also wrote Empire of the Summer Moon. What are they, what are they talking about? Chasing Lee around? Uh, yeah, basically. At the work, end. Uh, you know, and it covers the Lincoln, the Lincoln thing and how unpopular he was. Um, how you know it gives a lot of background on Grant, which is fascinating to me. I mean, Grant, really Sherman, all these guys. Sherman, they were great characters. Those two and, guys, and, and they were failures until the Civil yeah. War. <clears throat> yep. Now, yep. Um, they just needed the right uh, 
the right situation to display their brilliance, I guess. But uh, and to be let loose, they they, yeah, they, they had to be on uncorked. That, yeah, that was the problem. That was the problem with the with the union effort up to that point. Well, that ties into the book that I was going to recommend, uh, "Enemy at the Gate," which really the movie was based on with uh, Judd Law and Ed Harris as the German sniper, which they took one small segment of the book, which was the sniper duel between Vasily and the um, the head of the German sniper school. Um, but the book is about the ba- Battle of Stalingrad, mm-hmm. which is uh, truly horrific if you want to get a, a true scale of, you know, I mean, this thing went on from uh, August of 1942. It was over in February. Uh, you know, you're talking 1.5 million dead or wounded on both sides. That's brutal. <laughs> Within a city area, right? Like Washington, D.C. in the suburbs. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the, the level of uh, the slaughter and devastation and the, the heroics, the Russians had to stay their... Uh, your Mankoff was their commander, and they said, you've got to stay within hand grenade length of the Germans or they will drop artillery on you and, and they will have, their, have the Luftwaffe come in and kill you. Mm. Unless you, you've got to hug them by the belt or their artillery will cut you to pieces. So they had to stay close to the enemy, close to the enemy. So, so much of the fighting was hand-to-hand, face-to-face. And um, it was the turning point in the war. 88% of the German war dead were killed in Russia. No kidding. Yes. Wow. When he, when he launched, when Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, he launched across a 900-mile front with 4 million soldiers. Wow. Imagine. And he's and still fighting us. There was a there was a it was a war of annihilation. I mean, they they were killing people. They were just killing people. They wanted everybody in the Ukraine evacuated. I mean, if if you weren't killed by the Germans, you were to be uh, exiled to, you know, Kazakhstan because mm. they wanted that territory for German people, mm. and they were capturing any able-bodied women or boys and they were sending them for to germany as slave labor mm. wow. and that was what was going on and at uh, stalingrad they they turned it around but i mean it was a very 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 close thing very close thing and it uh you know it, it really was the tipping point for the whole war yes the american forces did great and yes the american forces were valiant but this this was on a scale at the Battle of Kursk, which was uh, a year later, which is really kind of the end of the German. After Kursk, Germany was on the defensive. Mm. And there were a thousand tanks battling a thousand tanks. And there were a thousand planes battling a thousand planes in mm. the air fighting in the ground fighting a thousand tanks battling a thousand tanks. Mm. Can you imagine? Yeah. Seven days on the open flat right. step, open, right. you know, nothing. And it's just all right. And and you'd run up 
10 feet from your opponent and hope that, you know, your, you know, armor piercing projectile blew up before he shot you. Yeah. Uh, 70% of the Russian um, tank guys were killed. I mean, it's just a slaughter. Yeah. Four four Russians died for every one Ru- a German that was killed. Wow. <laughs> right? They it's lost. It, it was the first time in history that the uh, winner. Had more dead bodies. Yeah. Four times. But they didn't they didn't care that, you know, the Soviet mobilized 12 million men. Yeah, man. Stop to human wave, 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 human wave. Oh, you ran out of bullets. Oh, too bad. Human wave. Isn't it sad how many, you know, how through history people are just, the human species is just so disposable in so many circumstances, you know? 10 years before I was born. Yeah. So recent. So recent. 10 years before I was born. Yeah. No, in the big right. picture, it, all this is it, it, we're not, we're, you know, recent. we're not like talking, we're not like talking like medieval times. No, I know. Uh, the, the something something bad happened in Germany, buddy. I'm telling you, the, the, the that was there was some evil, yeah, yeah, blank going on there. Hey, did you see that? Uh, just to change gears here, did but you see you that? can get a copy of the movie Enemy at the Gate, yeah, because yeah. that is a great one. It it shows some of the horror of that. The Germans made the mistake when they started the battle is they bombed the hell out of the city. They, they, I think they had like 700 planes drop. I don't know how much. But what it did is it created nothing but rubble. So the Russians just fought behind broken rubble and buildings and stuff. And it was like impossible to get them out. And, you know, they just, uh, they pushed them all the way to the edge of the Volga. They came so, so close to, to winning, but, uh, you know, they truly held on. And it was, it was a very heroic thing on the part of the Russians. And Let me ask you this. You can thank them for it. So you were a commune veteran. Did yes. you see that, that series on Netflix about the commune in Oregon? The, the Bhagwan Ranish. Oh, yes, the Bhagwan. Wow. Wow. Oh, 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 oh. Now, may I tell you something? Yeah. You know who our friend is. Yeah. JP, you knew who yes. our friend yeah. is. Yes. Mm-hmm. He grew up, he was one of, the, his family was one of those farmers who fought the Bhagwan. I bet. Wow, that is a small world, man. That's his neighborhood. I bet they fought him pretty good, too. <laughs> so I guess it had a little formative effect on you. Wow. Yeah. He said, yeah, he said, that's where I grew up. No kidding. Yeah. Out of all the places in the world, that's where the Bhagwan. You, you couldn't make that stuff up. Yeah. You couldn't yeah. make that stuff up, I'm telling you. Oh, I love that. Uh, I watched that thing. His, I was his, like, what his is girl, going to happen? His girl. What was his girl's name? Sheila. 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 Oh, she was vicious. Ooh. She's still, she's still kicked. She only got four and a half years. I know. She planned those murders. She poisoned the whole town. Yeah. JP, this, they were going to salad bars and fast food restaurants, 
and spraying salmonella on the on the vegetables, and people were sick all over the town. Four no years. Kidding, huh? Yes. That's all you get, buddy. Attempted murder. Everything. <laughs> JP, you got to watch it. It's called Wild Wild Country. You must yeah. watch it. All right, it. I'm going to write that down. Wild Wild Country. All right. Well, I wish I had a book to report, but uh, I've been pressed for time, holidays and all, and, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Dan, I want you to read, man. All right. Well, don't you have a interesting piece of equipment you'd like to share with the uh, audience? Yeah, we've got about 8,000 of those. Um, <laughs> well, boy. one in particular. Which, uh, you which know what we've got going on right now is, is really cool. We're doing a lot of... We're doing a lot of branding, a lot of uh, private labeling with all this great laser engraved uh, logos and things on um, urethane dumbbells and urethane Olympic Everybody plates and bumper plates and, you know, even uh, lifting platforms and rubber flooring. So, I mean, if, if you're starting up a, a little studio or commercial gym and and you really want to dial that thing in with with all your your marketing and and uh grow your brand hit us up because we're doing a lot of uh, really good things with equipment and we're doing it at a fair price too we uh we design most of the equipment from the inside out ourselves you know a lot of the free weights and different things so check us out we'll definitely work with you we've got some good things going on so that's what we're working on right now amongst, you know, a thousand other things. Um, we've also got Marty's articles and Jim's articles. Um, so to access those, just go to ironcompany.com. Click on the articles tab at the top and you can go on there and, and look at their latest. Uh, we just published one for Marty today. It's uh, fit, um, let's see, fit at 40, 50, 60, and 70. And he talks about... Uh, improving your current self. It's a real good article, so check that out. And then Jim's got one up there uh, about, um, you know, um, New Year's resolutions and how to make those stick and, and all that. So that's a good one, too. So check those out. Marty's also got some books on our site. He's got Purposeful Primitive, Strong Medicine. You can just uh, you can find those just by typing into the search field, and they'll come up. And then uh, you can also check out Jim Steele's website, BassBarbell.com, for different training and motivation and, and different programs and things. And they're also, if anybody out there wants to uh, uh, talk about or inquire about online coaching, you know, we're starting to get a lot of inquiries for that. And uh, so... Uh, you know, it's we're yeah, they want to get it. If you want to get it together in the new year, give us a ring. Yeah, exactly. We can get we can get you straight on it. If if Truly. you really want to transform it's not, yourself, it's not, it's not magic. It, next, it really is. It's, yeah. it's it's extremely systematic and logical. And if you're if you have the right situation, you know, if you've got uh, got the time and the energy, then. Um, contact us they don't want uh, posers we, now you got to be serious coming in there asking these guys questions <laughs> right we charge posers. extra for posers jim knows that one. he's from posers. the 80s all right guys good deal all right good one thanks thank you Bye.